Hello again, friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan, very excited about this week's show because my guest is one of America's greatest living writers, perhaps the preeminent American writer, Joyce Carol Oates, who not only holds a master's degree and an honorary doctorate from the University of Wisconsin, but of greater immediate interest, is coming back to Madison for an appearance at the Wisconsin Book Festival this Thursday evening, the 28th, to talk about her new collection, Zero Sum. That's 7 o'clock at the Madison Central Library. To call Joyce Carol Oates prolific is something of an understatement. Her statistics are staggering. By one account, 62 novels, 47 short story collections, 16 collections of nonfiction, plus collections of poetry, plays, and books for children and young adults. And the quality of her work is just as impressive as the quantity. She received the National Book Award for Fiction in 1970 for the novel Them. Barack Obama awarded her the National Humanities Medal in 2010, and she's been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize six times over a 45-year period. And those are just the highlights. She also maintains a very active presence on the social media site formerly known as Twitter. It is a pleasure and honor to welcome to Madison Bookbeat, Joyce Carol Oates. Thank you. And thank you for coming back to Madison for the book festival on the 28th. Do you enjoy reading at book festivals or something that you just endure? Oh, I enjoy meeting people, meeting readers and fellow writers. It's quite wonderful. Mm. I have such strong emotional feelings for, of course, for Madison. Since I I was married there (laughs) uh, quite a few years ago, so everything's positive. In a little bit, I do want to talk to you about your experience here as a graduate student and then coming back for your honorary doctorate later on. But as to the book fest, I know you're a fan of libraries, and I think you'll enjoy the new Madison Library, which has been greatly expanded since you were here last in 1999. So I hope you uh, do do enjoy that. Oh, that sounds wonderful. No, I didn't know about that. As to libraries and books, you have said, if you want to meet me, you will find me in my books. The new, mm. the new collection, Zero Sum, is a collection of stories involving suicide, revenge killings over sexual predation, miscarriages, psychological breakdowns, family alienation, abandonment, supernatural horror, the COVID lockdown, and finally, the end of human civilization. So, wow. so who is the Joyce Carol Oates we meet in this book? Well, I don't know how to answer that. It's a collection of stories that focuses on the theme of game playing, games that people play in their lives with other people, emotionally and psychologically, even professionally. The first story is about graduate students in philosophy. So, I mean, it's a kind of a complex question. I don't know that we read a book to meet the author. I don't think that Joyce Carol exists except as a series of texts you know, there's a name on the spine of a book, and that is the indication that somebody wrote the book. But the person behind that has other identities. You know, you can be a wife, a daughter, a sister, a teacher, a friend. You're not just the entity that's on a book jacket. Is there a difference between Joyce and Joyce Carol Oates? Well, as a writer, I'm writing, I'm working very hard to create a text. I mean, a story is an assemblage of words. I work very hard to make that have a kind of fluency that maybe approximates a kind of dream where everything is very tonally focused. That's something I'm doing using a certain degree of craft and vision. But I have other identities as a, as a human being. Or, so I don't think that the identity of the writer is synonymous with the identity of the, of the person. How does a collection like this come together? Did you say to your editor at Knopf, here are some stories I think work well together because they have a common theme? Does the idea come from Knopf? How did it go from various uh-huh. individual stories to what we have now as, as the book? 
Well, first of all, let me disabuse you. No, I mean, there's not even a Kanaf. I have an editor. You know, there's nobody named Kanaf. <laughs> <laughs> there's no entity that's the publisher that relates to, to a writer. No, writers write out of their own interior experiences. And during a certain period of time, it could be three or four years, we tend to be focused on similar themes. I was certainly haunted by many, many predilections and maybe even obsessions during the pandemic, which started in March 2020 for me and for people in New Jersey. I think it was March 13, 2020. Right around that time, we had our lockdown. Universities and schools shut down, and we went into a kind of hibernation. Those of us who lived alone were really quite isolated, except for my two cats. I was pretty much alone. So during that period, I worked very long, very long hours. I could work like t- t- two in the morning. I would work all day kind of inter- intermittently. Now, I did teach via Zoom, and I had, I had contacts with the outside world. I don't want to suggest that I didn't. But anyway, during that period, I was focused on certain themes. There is at least one story in the collection that's obviously about a person in quarantine during a pandemic. He, he's a, it's a man, former school teacher. So he's in lockdown, and that's the way I was when I was writing the book. So over a period of three or four years, a writer may be haunted by some of these themes that are common, that have a certain commonality, and then they come together, you put them into a book. Usually I leave out a number of stories I've written in a period of time, usually less than five years. It's it's pretty concentrated. Say I write 20 stories, I would leave maybe leave five stories out and concentrate on the 15 stories that have some sort of unity of theme. There's even some unity of language. At least two, and I think possibly a third story, uses refers explicitly to zero sum. There's a title story and another one about uh, an interior monologue of a man who's dealing with a, a friend who's been threatened by murder. Is there, oh, yes. What is there about the zero-sum game theory that you find particularly interesting? Oh, I find it quite fascinating. I was thinking, and maybe I still think, in terms of how our lives, in some sense, are like games that we're playing. We are taking chances. It's like we're the roll of the dice. Do you take a chance or do you not? Do you throw down your card? You're playing, you keep your cards close to your vest, you know. Looking upon life as a series of games People may be playing with us, but we don't know it. That's, a, that's an interesting theme, too. Sometimes in relationships that are romantic or erotic, love relationships, one p- person can be dominant, and he or she is setting the rules of the game. The other person is caught up in the emotion, it could be almost like a spider web, you know, you're sort of caught. And I'm, I'm interested in focusing on the experience of the person who's in the web, not realizing that it is a kind of game, and how does one gain consciousness of these circumstances. So in a couple of the stories, it's as if there are games being played, and, and there might be a winner and there might be a loser. Now, in my personal life, I don't think we have to enter into relationships that are, that are like games. I think that friendship is not a game, and I think that both partners can, can be winners, you know, in a relationship that's based on real love, where it's not competitive, where there's not jealousy. So in terms of real life, you don't subscribe to a zero-sum game theory, you think there can be winners on both sides? Well, I think that's ideal. And when we come to the arts, to culture, if we approach, say, beautiful music, I don't think we have to think of life in those terms, or nature. 
But then we move to the other world, which is so abrasive and competitive, the world, let's say, of politics. It's such a harsh world. We have a system of elections in which literally winner takes all. And with our divisiveness in America today, if one party wins, in many cases the other party really loses. And this kind of ripple effect, you know, all all along down the line, if you have a a political party that's very draconian and not really friendly towards citizens, ripple effect down the line, you have single-parent households with a mother struggling to support her children because there's not much of a social welfare in that. In the world of politics and society, often there is a sort of zero-sum game going on. Most people can't affect that. Uh, Most people are powerless. Their votes don't count for very much. However, in the world of human relations, that is different. I don't think necessarily games are being played all the time. I think if one particular party wins, we may all lose, but that's for another discussion. The the major work in the collection is The Suicide, which is the interior monologue of a celebrated bipolar novelist agonizing over the perfect suicide note. And this is a setup which you have acknowledged is inspired by the life and death of David Foster Wallace. I know you're not a fan of his, you're not a big fan of his writing, but if he had survived his suicide attempt and were still alive, would you have written and published this? Oh, that's hard to answer. There was a time in my life a few years ago when I was reading a lot of David Foster Wallace, and I I often teach a short story of his. That's really a masterpiece. It's only about three pages long. So at that time in my life, I was sort of fascinated by the idea of a person so tangled and involved in his own ego, his own personality, it seemed like the epitome of a certain kind of writer, maybe the late James Joyce when he was working on Finnegan's Wake, or maybe Nebuchadnezzar, that there are some writers who become so embroiled and tangled in their own identity as writers that they sort of lose their humanity. However, in the story of the suicide, there's one section where the writer actually leaves his house. He leaves his study and his computer and his, you know, his world. He's out driving his car, and he sees an animal. I guess it's a fox. He brings it to the animal rescue, and he's concerned with the fate of this this animal. And he he just forgets about himself, you know. And I, I think that's what happens to all of us. As soon as something in the real world requires us, where we have to help them step out of our bubble and come out, you know, forward into the world, we kind of forget about that neuroticism. Now, I, w- I wasn't really uh, writing about David Foster Wallace as an individual. It was more like the the concept of that kind of writer who becomes very embroiled in his own style. Of course, I probably feel that I could fall into that pattern myself. Almost nothing I write is, isn't also about myself in some way. Along those lines, your mother was given away by her mother after your grandfather was murdered in a, in a tavern brawl. And you have a story in this collection called Take Me, I Am Free, which is about a child whose mother is apparently trying to give her away, puts her on the sidewalk, sign says, take Mm -hmm. me, I'm free. Could you have written this story while your mother was still alive to read it? Gosh, I never thought at all of any connection between those two. I mean, the fact that you've you've said that is just amazing. No, I've never thought of that at all. Hmm. Well, this is one of the benefits of an interview. (laughs) No, I never had that thought. Um, wow. 
um, the story that I wrote is sort of like a fairy tale or a parable, one of those dark fairy tales where a child is imperiled and there's a wicked parent, usually a stepmother. In this case, I, it's the, an actual mother. No, I never thought of that. Well, I wrote about my mother's situation in a prose poem, and she saw that. I mean, I never wrote about anything that I didn't think she would, you know, not approve of. Also, my mother was not a literary person. She's a very, very sweet, really loving and wonderful person who was very supportive. And I, I wrote a whole novel inspired by my mother. And it's not about her, actually, but inspired by my mother called Missing, Missing Mom. A confession to make. I am new to the Joyce Carol Oates oeuvre. So I'm coming at this with entirely new eyes. And if I ask questions which are inappropriate or out of bounds, I, I trust that you'll tell me. Oh, not at all. No, what, no the, the parallel that you drew just now actually is quite breathtaking. I mean, really, yeah, it's very interesting. I It's totally un, unconscious on my part, however. <laughs> well, I, well I'll, I'll take one more stab and see if, if this how if this blows up, because it seems to me there's another story in the book which references your own life, and that's the somewhat gothic horror story, Monster Sister. Does writing something like this help you deal with the pain of your sister, Lynn Ann? I was really talking, I think, about the changes that come over us as we maybe become adolescents. And also, if if one is a writer... If you have some other personality that starts to emerge, you know, like the girl is really taken over by this other entity that's literally growing out of her brain, and the other entity takes her place in the family, too. It was just kind of a, a nightmare situation. I don't know how I would interpret it, I think I think writers and poets don't really need to interpret their work. It's more that the image is so powerful and haunting. As when we write about ghosts, uh, there are there are no ghosts in life, and yet there's a whole genre of ghost stories. You know, there's something so powerful and potent about the image of the ghost, even though it has no literal being in the world, obviously it means something to people. So I think I'm drawn to writing about those powerful, potent images. Right. In, interpreting poets and authors is the work of graduate students. Um, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> as to poets, your novel Night, Sleep, Death, and the Stars had as its epitaph the stanza of the Walt Whitman poem A Clear Midnight, which concludes with that line, that was not the first time you had incorporated that poem in your works because you had quoted the same lines applying to yourself in the pre-dawn hours on the shores of Lake Mendota in your coming-of-age book, The Lost Landscape. So I Really? S- I didn't know. I didn't remember that. Really? <laughs> You're like a bloodhound. You're just tracking me down and finding all these things I didn't know about. No, it's wonderful. Well, I... I see, see. This this is the value of of knowing that you're new to an author is you have to do some research and find out what, <laughs> what to talk about. It's amazing. Well, you've put your finger on, I guess, a lot of uh, parallel moments. Well, it suggests that there's a certain unity in my in my imagination. I assume that the poem "A Clear Midnight" is very meaningful to you, and for people who don't have their anthologies at hand, that stanza is, This is thy hour, O soul, thy free flight into the worldless, away from books, away from art, the day erased, the lesson done, thee fully forth emerging, silent, gazing, pondering the themes thou lovest best, night, sleep, death, and the stars. Are night, it's so sleep, beautiful. So beautiful. Are night, sleep, death, and the stars the themes that thou lovest best? Well, I don't know how to answer that. Walt Whitman has such a vast expanse of 
imagination. He wrote about so many things, and and typically his lines are very long. You know, the, the Walt Whitman lines are very long and incantatory, and just filled with a catalog of all kinds of people and, and places and things. So this poem is really almost like an anti-Whitman poem. It's like he wrote a poem one night at midnight. And, you know, I'm not going to do all this expansive Walt Whitman, gregarious, extroverted, cataloging, incantatory prose. I'm going to write a, a lyric poem right out of my heart and keep it very short. It's only about eight eight lines or so. It's a be- beautiful little poem. So I wouldn't say that that is the sensibility that I completely identif- identify with. I mean, maybe all of us have a sort of nighttime self. I do write late at night. I don't know why. I, I find it hard to go to bed. It could be one thirty in the morning and I'm still I'm still writing. So I think there might be some sensibility that comes to the fore late at night. Maybe I wouldn't feel quite the same in the morning, like right now it's about eleven eleven thirty in the morning and the sun is out and it's a different feeling. So we have different temperaments. So night sleep, the death and the stars is very much meditative looking inward. Well, it was apparently a very meaningful poem because you apparently experienced it and felt it when you were standing on the shores of Lake Mendota after one of those nights of insomnia when you were a graduate student here, which is where I want to turn now. We're talking with the legendary Joyce Carol Oates. She'll be at the Wisconsin Book Festival this Thursday at 7 p.m. in the Madison Central Library to talk about her new book, Zero Sum and Presumably More. Turning to those experiences in Madison, starting with the 60-61 school year, when you spent, which you spent getting your master's degree in English and American literature, but not being invited to continue for your Ph.D., that was not an intellectually satisfying academic experience, was it? Oh, yes. Overall, it was. It was really just the, the oral exam that was sort of unpleasant. No, but I liked my class. I liked my courses very much. I had a wonderful professor, Helen White. She taught medieval literature. She was really wonderful. And there were many other good experiences. But I met my husband there, Ray Smith. I met him there um, very soon after I arrived, I think maybe in October of that year. So I spent a lot of time with him. He was a Ph.D. candidate. He was getting his Ph.D. He was writing his dissertation, and we talked about books a lot, all the time. He had taken all the courses that I had taken, that I was taking, and he talked to me about these books. And no, we had a, it was a very, very exciting, productive time for me. I wrote a long paper in an, a, a seminar in American literature. A long paper, I think it was like a hundred-page paper at Melville, and that was a very exciting experience, too. No, it was really just the oral exam when I was examined by kind of unsympathetic male professors who who didn't, I don't think they knew me. They were, I mean, probably it's a weeding out process. Say you have, say you have 30 candidates, you have to weed out 15. I mean, I'm just guessing. So a young woman who was married at that time would seem to be a person that you might weed out. So I think they just asked me questions, you know, that were that were difficult. As I remember about <clears throat> bibliography of, you know, like the date of some publication, rather than talking about Walt Whitman as a poet, talking about the dates of the publication of his his books, that sort of thing. But but I don't think that didn't really shadow my feeling for Madison as a whole. See, this this is I'm glad I asked because this was not the sense I got from reading the chapter Nighthawk in the Lost Landscapes, which, as I read it, portrayed most of the professors as fairly unimaginative and unengaged. I mean, certainly there there was that malicious bit at the oral exam, but I got the sense that intellectually it was not. A satisfying experience. I'm, I'm glad 
that uh, you clarify that because uh, it well, makes me feel. Right, little, go ahead. I haven't read that. I haven't read that essay in quite a long time, so it's probably about being an insomniac. It is, yes. Because I, I did have insomnia, and I probably do have insomnia now. But I always got. I make sure that I get very, very tired. That's why one of the reasons I stay up so late and reading or working. If I go to bed at a normal time, I just can't sleep. You know, so there's a feeling maybe of the unease and anxiety of insomnia, which is maybe the tonal, um, you know, the tonal music of Nighthawks is, takes that. But I think when I look back on it, you know, from the perspective of being with my fiancé and then with my husband, from that point of view, it was a wonderful time, and we I read so many books that later on and to this very day have meaning to me. Now, there were some professors, they were not as young and they were not as engaging or exciting as professors I had had at Syracuse, so maybe I was comparing the two. At Syracuse, I had very dynamic professors, not that they were that young, I suppose they could be in their 40s or 50s, uh, they were just very dynamic. There was a focus on literature and excitement. But at Madison, the professors were older in the graduate school courses, and they focused on history and source material. Say you're taking a course in Shakespeare, you spend a lot of time on his his source material, Howland Chronicles, and other books. So that's just not as interesting. But I do remember that Helen White was a wonderful teacher. And um, I had some other interchanges with other people, too, like other graduate students and writer friends. The the revered lady in purple, Helen C. White, any specific memories of her? Well, she was just very warm and personable. Um, We just... We all liked her. I mean, we all maybe we kind of loved her. The graduate seminar really liked her a lot. She was very warm and open in a way that the other professors weren't. Now, I have to say that maybe I'm not fair to the other professors. I probably just didn't know them, and maybe they were a little uh, stiff in the seminar room. They weren't as relaxed as she was. Yeah, I remember her saying how, talking about when she was a graduate student, of course, being a woman, I believe an unmarried woman, she was so and so uh, unrepresentative, you know, of all the men were, it was mostly all men, or maybe it was all men except for her, I don't remember, and they were all probably married and, and had children, and you know, there's kind of established male uh, patriarchal figures. And then there's this woman, and she was very warm and smiling and helpful, and it was such a contrast. She also had great politics. She took a very strong stand against Joe McCarthy in the early 1950s. I'm glad to hear that. No, I didn't know that. I remember her telling the graduate students in the seminar how when she was a graduate student, she would put all her work on her bed. And she said, and if I wanted to go to bed, I had to do that work. You know, like books, you have to read you know, 50 pages of something. And I always remember that, to put it on her bed and then do the work, and then she could go to bed. So obviously the one great thing that happened your year here was meeting and marrying Raymond Smith, was the next best thing that you were not invited to continue for your doctorate? Well, I guess that was really felicitous. Yes, yes, that's good. I don't know whether I would have wanted to continue right away. Anyhow, when, when I was in, I went with my husband to Beaumont, Texas, and then I commuted to Houston, and I was a graduate student actually in a Ph.D. program at Rice University. So I actually was in a Ph.D. program. I started it, and I was commuting by bus to Houston, and I would stay overnight in a hotel. I would go to my my classes. 
And I kind of like that, but then I just realized that I would rather be a writer, that I really wanted to write fiction, and my heart was in fiction rather than learning about Hallinshen's Chronicles. Because once again, I was taking a course, it was a seminar once again in Shakespeare, and we were looking at the source material. And I just thought, I'm really not, I'm just not interested in this. And though I like the professor, but I remember just deciding. One time riding on the bus, I decided I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm just going to stay, stay home and, and write. I think that worked out pretty well. well. I was lucky because I was married. So, Though my husband had a very modest income teaching, but he could support both of us. So I just stayed home for a year. So with that background, what was your immediate reaction when the University of Wisconsin offered you an honorary doctorate of humane letters in 1985? Oh, well, that was very nice. I mean, times had changed, and I don't have any negative feeling about about Wisconsin. It's such a beautiful... It's Madison is such an, an interesting place, and walking along the lake and... I had so many wonderful times that were sort of non-intellectual, you know, more emotional. I have uh, memories of being, you know, getting married and having this first apartment of our lives and taking a bus and walking through the uh, kind of a back way. I don't remember the name of the streets any any longer, but um, through the, at the agricultural college and just sort of walking along, and then walking up, was it Bascom Hill, that long hill? Mm-hmm. A very stall, long, steep hill. There were lots of nice trees. Now I have a lot of, a lot of other, other memories. You know, when you're writing, you have to select, and you, can, you sort of select a certain tonal atmosphere. You kind of choose what you're going to put in, but you have to leave, leave many things out. You write briefly about coming back in 85 in Nighthawk, and you describe the experience as surreal, though not nightmare surreal, more ironically perverse, noting that if you had gotten your doctorate, you probably wouldn't have been honored in this way. Do you remember anything about the ceremony itself, where you got that honorary doctorate? Oh, it may blend together with other similar ceremonies, because I have an honorary doctorate from University of Michigan, and University of Pennsylvania, and uh, <clears throat> and Northwestern University. So uh, the commencement cer- ceremonies tend to be somewhat alike, you know. So I think they're all kind of conflated in my memory now. Well, no, I don't. Well, and I should have, I may have written something down in a journal, but I don't have my journal at home. It would be in my archive at Syracuse. So I probably wrote something down, you know, but I don't have access to it. Well, let me see if I can jog your memory. There is a document, there's a memo in the files of the University of Wisconsin archives, which relates how unhappy you were over the atmosphere of the event, which was during the era of of rowdy commencements, and, and it says, it actually uses the word that you were spooked to describe your reaction to what it calls, quote, a rowdy, unruly, alcoholic celebration. Wow. Okay, well, I do remember, I didn't know whether that was at Michigan or where that was. I also got an honorary doctorate from uh, Drexel in Philadelphia, where there seemed to be a lot of rowdy behavior. Um, I don't know what to say. I've been at many commencements. Some, Some are very gracious and dignified, and others that are in large stadiums can get out of hand. I think. Okay, well, if I said that, then that's that was the experience. Well, well, but that, I don't remember. It, I don't really remember it, like literally remember. It. Okay, okay. Well, it, it, this this was a memo from some of the administrators who had been escorting you, describing the event and, and and how they hoped to have you come back someday, and that we needed to be more dignified to, to, and so on. Uh, we're talking with Joyce Carol Oates. She will be at the Wisconsin Book Festival on Thursday to talk about Zero Sum and, and more. This is in the Central Library at 7 p.m. 
the seminal event in the creation in your creation story is your grandmother Blanche giving you the Alice books for your ninth birthday. How did she know those books would affect you so profoundly? Gosh, well, that's a good question. I don't think she probably knew she would have known that Alice in Wonderland was, you know, was a children's classic. She gave me a lot of books. This was the only one that I remember especially. I mean, she gave me books like young girls with animals, like The Black Stallion and Nancy Drew. She gave me a lot of Nancy Drew novels. Uh, this was sort of lucky. I'm kind of lucky that she gave me this book. I still have it. It's a children's book, and it's uh, a little bit larger than an ordinary book. It has the beautiful illustrations. Was Alice a role model for you? I don't know that she was a role model. I remember thinking that she was about 10 years old. She's actually seven, which is really young. She behaves more like a 10-year-old. Uh, she's very outspoken. She's not afraid to talk back to, to adults, which I think would have been impressive to me. When I grew up, children did not talk back to adults. But here's Alice talking back to the queen, the red queen and the duchess, and she talks back to these nightmare figures. Did you want to be Alice or Lewis Carroll? Well, I probably wanted to be Lewis Carroll because I, I, I liked the idea of being an author. Alice was somebody I couldn't be. She was a little girl in some faraway place and time. She wore a pinafore. Um, it was kind of a different world from the farm that I grew up in. On the farm, you come from people who did not go to college, didn't even finish high school. How much did it mean to your father that you were not only a great success as a student, valedictorian, graduate fellowships, but that you also became a teacher and professor? Well, I think both my parents were just sort of surprised. They, they thought I would be a teacher, like maybe high school, because I always wanted to be a teacher, and that was very, very clear. All my life I had wanted to be a teacher. But I think they were probably just surprised. I mean, maybe they were shocked that I became a writer since no one in the family was even reading <laughs> except my grandmother, who turned out to be Jewish, my, my father's mother. She's sort of from another, another world, really. Um, yeah, I think they were so supportive. My father was somebody who would have gone to college if he had had the opportunity so when he retired from being a factory worker, he went to the University of Buffalo as an auditor in the senior citizen program, and he loved that. That was the happiest time of his life. So he had about, oh, 15, 20 years after he, after he retired. When he just read, he took the bus to Buffalo, my prof the professors there said that they just loved Fred Oates. They said he was the best student, and they, and he, they loved him. I was so touched when they told me that. The UW has a great senior auditor program that I'm part of. It's it's wonderful to, to stay on campus. What what do you think was the most important thing you did or accomplished as a teacher? Well, I'm still teaching. I don't think there's any one thing. I relate to individual students. Um, I don't know how I would sum up my many, many decades of teaching in one sentence. Okay. Do you think it's had any impact on your writing? I teach literature to my students, so we spend we can spend an hour on a story by Ernest Hemingway, which obviously helps me as a writer. Um, yesterday, we spent quite a long time on two very short stories, one by Ray Carver and one by Jean Reese. So uh, looking at other people's writing, classic writing, that has a good effect on any writer. So that part of it definitely has probably helped me. 
you mentioned finding out that your grandmother was Jewish. That was something you did not find out until you were an adult. You didn't learn about the murder and suicide and abandonment that shaped your parents' lives until you were in your 30s. Would knowing those things years earlier have changed anything about how you perceived or lived your life? Well, that's difficult to answer. It's really impossible. No, I, I have no way to answer that. If we don't have parallel lives, we only we only live one life, you know. But it's so interesting, you know. During the course of this interview, I called you a bloodhound, sort of, you know, and meaning it affectionately. <laughs> that you pointed out, kind of, um, in one case, a disparity between my memory of of Wisconsin or I didn't really have much of a memory, and then what evidently I had actually experienced. But at the commencement ceremony, you know, I was probably trying to remember who the speaker was and who I was relating to, like on stage. There was probably a luncheon or a dinner or some social event. It was probably very positive. And the behavior of individual students out in the stadium, you know, that they were rowdy or drunk, that's kind of different. It's sort of not integral to the honorary doctorate experience. So, like, there are two different experiences, mm-hmm. you know. So I wouldn't say that my experience with the honorary doctorate ceremony was in itself negative. That was probably very positive. But I don't remember who else got honorary doctorates. There was a, there was a time in my life when often... And Landers would get a doctorate along, along with me. Yep. Ann Landers or Abby, dear Abby. Yep. She was. I remember the, yep, yep. running into her. You know. Uh, so, when you get an honorary doctorate, there is a, a little cohort. There could be five other people, and you have lunch together, and you sort of hang out together, and that's what you would remember more than being out in you know out on the stage she was i have been at commencement ceremonies where i'm sitting in a black cap and gown out in the sun for like 90 minutes so that's a, that's kind of the the visceral existential memory you're sitting sweltering in in May sunshine. And I've had that experience a number of times. But I wouldn't say that it was an you know, integral to the actual honorary doctorate experience. And then I've had experiences indoors where the commencement is indoors, like in a large uh like a large gymnasium or something. I think at Rutgers and that's another kind of experience. She was there and Jerry Bach, too. Uh, let me try one more big concept question, which may or may not work. The epigraph to your bio novel about Marilyn Monroe, Blonde, is from Sartre. And it's, genius is not a gift, but the way a person invents in desperate circumstances. Is that how you account for your genius, that you invented your way out of desperate circumstances? Well, um... You really are a bloodhound, aren't you? You know, you have made a very good investigative detective <laughs> where you find these clues and then you interrogate, you interrogate the, 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 the accused person. Um, I don't know how to answer that. Certainly I find that quote very, very powerful. It was definitely relevant to, to Marilyn Monroe. Definitely. She had so, so many turns in her life that depended upon her just making a desperate decision and being advanced to the next stage. Her life was like a series of zero-sum games played with men. It's always a man who is dominant. Yeah, I really, really felt that was such a tragic story. As has how it might relate to me, I don't know how to answer that. I I can't really claim that I feel desperate because there are really desperate people in the world and people who are suffering and anxious and terrified people. And 
I'm certainly not one of those people. I have probably felt anxious. But it is a good question, and I often quote Sartre. I don't even know where I found that quote, but it's just a brilliant, it's a brilliant insight into so much of our lives. Like people behaving heroically. I think it was John F. Kennedy who said, well, you know, he was considered a war hero. He said, well, we didn't, I didn't have any, we didn't have any choice. They sank the, they sank the ship. You know, I thought, what a great quote. He became a hero because they sank the ship. So that happens with people, and they do become heroic. On the other hand, if the ship hadn't sunk, they might just have been an ordinary, normal person. And then you might not have been able to write blonde as you did. Well, that's true for a lad. I did have an identification of Marilyn with my mother because my mother was given away and my mother was very sad and she didn't really have a mother. And that's true of Norma Jean Baker. Her mother would put her in a foster home in my novel, she's only in one foster home and one orphanage, but real life, there are many. She might have been in a dozen. Her mother would take her back home and then put her back in, take her back. Her mother was schizophrenic. And uh, I think Marilyn Monroe grew up totally, totally insecure, just anxious just not feeling that anyone loved her, really. And then one by one, people kind of betrayed her. Um, even Arthur Miller, he started writing about her. She begged him never to write about her, but he did. He wrote about her. Let me ask you one question about the act of writing. The documentary, A Body in the Service of Mind, shows what appears to be maps and charts of works that you're working on throughout the years. Do you learn anything about the characters and the story as you're writing, or is it all mapped out and understood in advance? Did you see that film? Yeah. I watched it twice. Oh, you, you did? I watched it online My twice, goodness. yeah. You, you are remarkable. I, I feel... No. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. If I talked to you every morning of my life, I'd probably <laughs> have a certain advantage. Because, you know, when people are interviewed, usually there's no follow-up. A person asks a question, and then there's an answer. But it's it's not usual that the interviewer really knows that much, so it usually, you know, it just keeps going on. So, well, you saw that twice. Now, I have to say you may have seen more than I did because <laughs> I found it very painful to watch, so I watched through it on my laptop. I saw, you know, glimpses of my parents and my grandmother and my husband Ray and my husband Charlie, and it was too much for me emotionally. I I couldn't really, I couldn't deal with seeing all those people that I had lost. Um, so I didn't see, I didn't see the whole movie in a continuous way, but I've seen probably most of it. Well, there are some, just some brief shots of what looks like, as I say, maps of either right. or, or, yeah, or charts. Yeah, I, do, yeah. do, you, do, you, do you have... Oh, yes, yes. Well, for my long novels or for a novel like Blonde, I would have charts and maps. Uh huh. Hmm. Yeah, I would have, I would spend a long time on the maps where people lived. Um, the Gothic, long Gothic novels, Mysteries of Winterturn, Belfleur. You have to have maps for something like that. Hmm. They're really long novels with many people, a large cast of characters. I love doing that. I, I haven't done one of those long novels in a while. Now, Night Sleep, Death of Stars, that novel is set in the house I'm, I'm in. It's set right in the house here. I'm sitting right here. I'm actually in the kitchen of that house. And it's on a little creek near a lake. And it's in a suburban neighborhood like the one in the novel. So I didn't have to make a, a map for that novel. When I read about something that's close to my experience, 
I don't need to make a, a, a map. But when it's set in the 19th century, like in, in another part of, of the country, then I make a map. Yeah. Let me end with a a non-probing, non-threatening question that hopefully will be a lighthearted way. Is the secret to being so prolific having a cat on your lap with her claws in your thighs <laughs> while you're at your desk? Well, maybe in some way having a quiet, a quiet atmosphere. So if any women who are writers who are listening to this, you probably know that you get interrupted a lot. Women who are mothers especially and also wives, they get interrupted a lot. So if you have a study and you can go in there, close the door, or slip away somewhere quiet, if you have a cat with you, that's even better because the cat may sleep on your lap and purr, and then you have a couple of hours of uninterrupted work. But if there's any secret to being productive at all, it's having your own quiet time, not being distracted and not being interrupted. And a cat on your lap purring is a, definitely a bonus. And if her claws are in your thighs preventing you from standing up, all, right. all the more better. That's right. And it's sort of half true. I mean, we all have that experience. Well, I know you've got some writing to do, so I'll let you go. This has been a wonderful experience to, to have a chance to speak with you. Again, the legendary Joyce Carol Oates will be at the Madison Central Library on Thursday the 28th at 7 p.m. in a conversation about her new collection, Zero Sum, and more with a great young writer, Chloe Benjamin. I expect I will see you there. On behalf of News and well, I look forward to meeting you. Well, thank you so Bye-bye. much. Well, thank you so much. Andrew Thomas will be your host next week with his guest, Jerome Kamal, author of Creolized Orality. I'll be back on October 30th with my guest, UW professor Stephen Kantrowitz. His new book is Citizens of a Stolen Land, a Ho-Chunk History of the 19th Century United States. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Shelley Pittman, the aforesaid Andrew Thomas on the board, and all of us here at Madison BookBeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. Now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT, 89.9 FM, Madison. Listener-sponsored community radio.